Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back with Eric Davis, who's the chairman of the North Carolina State Board of Education. And we're talking about the reopening of schools, a subject that is of uh, vital interest to so many of our listeners, parents, grandparents, and of course, the students themselves. A little bit more on the background of Eric Davis. As I said, he is uh, was elected chair in September of 2018. But he had a very interesting background because he graduated from the U.S. Military Academy back in 1983 and uh, is a civil engineer. Uh, so that, that's kind of an interesting. How did you get interested in, in education? Uh, because you went on the Charlotte Board of Education first. Uh, what uh, caused you to get interested in this, uh, this uh, commitment of service to the state? Well, um, I've just... Uh Personally, my family has so benefited from North Carolina public education system. My mother was a, a uh, school secretary of a K-8 school with about 1,200 students. And um, it just, um, I was just fortunate to have an opportunity to be able to uh, pay back our state and our community um, that has served our family so well. And so I was just delighted to be able to have that opportunity. Eric, uh, one of the things that uh, is, I'm looking sort of ahead, let's assume that uh, maybe as many as uh, 20% of college students elect uh, to take a gap year uh, in their college experience and want to come back next year. Uh, and so that's going to uh, put back uh, a large number of students returning next year. So uh, the concern I've got now is for the high school seniors who are applying for colleges. Let's say that, uh, say, 3,000 students uh, elect to not uh, come back to, say, North Carolina State University this year, but want to come back next year. Uh, So there are going to be 3,000 students there that uh, uh, NC State wasn't ready for, and yet uh, they've got this whole crop of high school seniors making applications. Has anyone looked at that situation and, and uh, what might happen in that regard? Um, I have not been involved in discussions of um, at the university level of how um, our university system will respond to a situation like that, but I do have great faith in, uh, in many of the members of the board of governors that I know, is, is, and in particular with our chancellors at our uh, public universities, as well as our independent colleges and universities. We, we're very fortunate to have a terrific mix of public and private institutions of higher learning. And um, I, would, uh, I would trust their judgment in how best to respond to a situation like that. I, I will share with you, Don, that we're, we're looking for ways, um, given that um, so many of our recent college graduates uh, in this difficult economic circumstances are having uh, much trouble uh, finding employment. We're looking for ways to uh, to tap into their energy and spirit and and enthusiasm, and see if there's ways that they could help us in tutoring, mentoring, and coaching some of our students. So we hope to have more to say on that topic in the near future. Now let's get to money because this is a, uh, a this is a two-sided sword for sure. We're going to have uh, certain budget restraints because the state of North Carolina requires a balanced budget, and obviously the tax revenues are not going to be as high, so there's going to be a strain there. And then, of course, the extra uh, cost of 
programs that are necessary because of COVID-19 is stretching that budget. So the school systems uh, are now going to be facing budget problems that they had not anticipated. What do you see happening there and how are we going to close that gap? Well, you just touched on one of the most severe situations that we face. Many of our school districts were already in a fragile state given uh, uh, historic budget reductions to their finances. And this COVID pandemic has just exacerbated the fragileness of so many of our districts. Uh, In child nutrition, for instance, many districts have used whatever reserves they had just getting through last spring. Fortunately, our um, General Assembly provided uh, uh, significant sums to help us get through that period, and we're grateful for them. For that, uh, for that support. But on the whole, while acknowledging that our state does face revenue shortfalls, and, and those must be addressed, that, um, that we really need our districts protected from any uh, decrease in enrollment in the coming year. Uh, the education term is average daily membership. We're advocating that our districts be held harmless from any changes, any decreases, I should say, of ADM in this coming year. Um, We have significant challenges in our exceptional children program. It's very challenging to reach satisfactorily exceptional children through a remote instruction, and that will take additional funding, Uh, continuing child nutrition and feeding of students who are not attending our schools will require additional funding. Um, we're grateful to the General Assembly for and Governor for having provided uh, north of 350 some million in federal money that was made available to our state and um, and that we've been able to or will soon send to districts. But that's just the beginning. It, this is going to be a much more expensive proposition in the coming years just to um, deal with the health concerns that we need to provide personal protective equipment, to provide the additional psychologists, nurses, social workers, and counselors needed in our schools, um, to provide just additional resources, period. And at the end of the day, Don, while we're going to advocate for everything we can from our state, and our state does need to step up in a big way, the federal government, with its vast resources, has got to close the gap between falling state revenues and increasing expenditure for education of our children. In in my view, there is no greater responsibility we have collectively than the education of our children. And that should be our first priority in committing our resources and our time and effort through this pandemic. Broadband, it keeps coming up and has been coming up now for some time because all sections of the state uh, do not have broadband and that is uh, now uh, becoming a problem as you look at virtual uh, uh, education systems and so forth and yet now the budget's going to be constrained and so some of the money that might have gone into expanding the broadband system to areas that did not have it may be delayed. Uh, That's a serious problem also. It is. Um, So broadband access is our generation's version of electrifying North Carolina. Um, That may have been the the task in the 30s 
to electrify North Carolina. Our task today is to get broadband to every corner and every community and every dirt road in North Carolina. And while it's an incredibly pressing education issue, it's more than just an education issue. It's an economic development. It's a commerce. It's a quality of life. It's a health care issue. And um, there, there's one thing that, uh, you know, we could really rally around is that our, our quality of life for every one of our families would be enhanced immeasurably if there was universal broadband access, reliable broadband access to every, every student. We, we take it for granted now that in order to have a, a decent home, you got to have certainly water and sewer and electricity. Well, I think broadband is the next utility that needs to be uh, delivered to uh, every home in North Carolina. So how many of our counties uh, do not have adequate broadband? And what percentage of the population does this amount to? Yeah, I, I don't have a specific number of, of communities it, uh, off the top of my head, but it, uh, it generally equates to somewhere in the order of uh, 25 to 30% of our students that were unable to reach uh, through a virtual uh, um, uh, broadband um, channel. We have to reach them in a physical paper pencil packet approach. And the challenges that many of our communities face in the western part of our state is the topography is such that, that it's difficult to get access across mountains and into valleys. Whereas in other parts of our state, um, maybe some examples in the eastern part, there are no cell towers. So it doesn't do any good to deliver hotspots on buses to communities. There, there aren't towers to, to relay the message. So um, it's a variety of situations. I would say that third or a quarter to a third is a good range of, of um, numbers to use for analysis purposes. But there's been many studies conducted on the need for broadband access and the uh, limitations. And, and I'm very grateful for the companies that stepped up in the spring and provided us hotspots and other uh, tools to, uh, on a short-term basis, close the gap. But uh, it's going to take a concerted effort by our state to, uh, to remedy this problem. So you've really got two, two basic plans that you have to uh, look at. One is those uh, in the virtual uh, area. One of those areas that are served by broadband and those areas that are not. So those have to be two separate plans. That's true. Um, to successfully deliver education to uh, a student virtually, you got to have broadband access. You got to have a device that student knows how to use and is comfortable manipulating. And then you got to have the curriculum and instruction delivered in a way that is effective for the student. So you got to have those three components, and we are in short supply of of all three. Um, any one of those three creates the gap. Um, uh, again, I commend our teachers and staff who have built more virtual curriculum and materials over the summer to help close that gap. Uh, appreciate the companies that have devoted and the public funding that has gone towards uh, procuring additional devices. But you know, those devices have to be replaced on a regular basis because they wear out or have other issues. And then, uh, and then there's the broadband access. Eric Davis is our guest. He's the chairman of the North Carolina State Board of Education, a board that has been working at very hard at finding solutions to the challenges of reopening our school systems and educating our K-12 students. 
We'll be back with one final segment of Carolina Newsmakers and uh, Eric Davis right after these messages. Not completing high school is more of a social thing than it was an academic thing. I came out in the 11th grade. Nobody was embracing you. The kids were cruel. It was very difficult to be gay. Even though all these years have passed, I still had that longing to have my diploma. The hard part was determining that I was gonna do it, but I definitely didn't do it alone. At age 30, with the help of her mentor, Carissa finished her high school diploma. I have a mentor, Maria. She convinced me to continue my education and to finish what I started to get my diploma. She just never judges. She's a true role model. If you're even considering getting your high school diploma, go get it. You can do it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. You're never completely ready to adopt a teen. For late nights writing English papers. For your teen's music taste. For dinners, where they talk more on their phone than with you. For the first time, they call you mom. You're never completely ready to adopt a teen. And you can't imagine the reward. To learn more about adopting a teen, visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. <coughs> to some people, the sound of a baby babbling doesn't mean much. But that's not necessarily true. By six months, they're combining vowels and consonants. By nine months, they're trying out different kinds of sounds. And by 12 months, their babbling is beginning to take on some meaning. Especially if there's no babbling at all. Little to no babbling by 12 months or later is just one of the possible signs of autism in children. Early screening and intervention can make a lifetime of difference and unlock a world of possibilities. Take the first step at AutismSpeaks.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Eric Davis is our guest. He's the chairman of the North Carolina State Board of Education. We've been talking about reopening schools, a reminder to those of you who are listening to the half-hour version of this program, there are two segments that you don't hear, but they are available on carolinanewsmakers.com, and, and Eric covered a lot of very interesting topics, and so if you'd like to hear those two segments, you can go to carolinanewsmakers.com and hear those two segments, or if you'd like to share the entire broadcast with a friend, you can do the same thing, carolinanewsmakers.com. Well, uh, Eric, we, this has been very enlightening, and, and uh, obviously the, the State Board of Education is working very hard to see that the schools are reopened safely and wisely and that we continue the course of educating our kids. I, I guess I'd probably start this segment off by just saying, what are your, say, your top five concerns right now, and, and uh, what do you think is going to happen in the immediate future? Well, I'm mostly concerned with uh, making sure that we provide the personal protective equipment in our schools to keep um, our teachers, staff, and students safe. 
I'm concerned that we find the right balance on um, caring for st- teachers and members of our staff who their personal health is leads them to be vulnerable or caring for vulnerable family members balanced with the need to have um, teachers and staff in our schools. Um, I worry about feeding our children. Um, so many of our children rely on us for those nutritious meals. Um, I worry about our district finances and the importance of holding them harmless due to decreasing enrollment. And, uh, and frankly, I worry about um, our ability to close the uh, education gaps that have been exacerbated by this pandemic. But despite all those worries, I am incredibly optimistic. I am confident and have great faith in our fellow North Carolinians that, um, that this generation can rise to the challenge just as previous generations have, and that we do our best work in challenging times like we're in now. And I'm confident that we'll look back some point in the future and say with admiration and say, boy, we got the job done for the benefit of our children and the future of North Carolina. Well, so many of the issues that were uh, high on your list prior to COVID-19, things like standardized testing and uh, graduation rates and uh, the performance of schools and school districts and the retaining and uh, recruiting of school teachers, all these things are still on the plate. And so how do you balance this off between worrying about the immediate concerns and then not forgetting that we've still got these same problems or opportunities uh, as, as some of them are, to, uh, uh, to the whole field of education? Well, I think like, um, like any good organization, you have to deal with the urgent and then you have to deal with the important. And while each day seems to be consumed with uh, COVID-19, I'm really uh, proud of my colleagues on the board and the, the teamwork they have with the Department of Public Instruction particularly in developing our strategic plan. We recently um, discussed a uh, framework for action for that strategic plan, which includes a uh, intense focus on equity and eradication of racism in our system. And so despite the uh, urgent cares of today, we're focused on the long-term and will continue to do so. We've got a great effort focused on uh, K3 literacy, and I'm appreciative to uh, Ann Clark and Crystal Hill for leading that effort. Um, and so we are balancing uh, the needs to deal with COVID as well. And uh, interestingly, way. as you have pointed out throughout the broadcast, there are so many of these decisions that have to be localized, and the local school boards and local educators are the ones that are going to set the policies basically for each individual school district and each individual set of circumstances. And uh, that's just uh, just a fact. I mean, there's, there's no getting around the fact that every set of circumstances is somewhat different. Yeah, that's true. I mean, our system is, is set up based on, uh, on local school districts. And, and while the state board is enshrined in our uh, constitution from 1868, the fact of the matter is that we, exist to support our local districts and charter schools in delivering education to to our children and I just hold our superintendents and local leaders in the highest regard they are our frontline um, professionals that uh, make the tough decisions every day and yet at the same time 
are, are the ones that our children remember for a lifetime because they make such a lasting impact. So right now, is, it looks like we're going to have sort of a combination, a hybrid system of virtual education and in-classroom instruction in most districts. And of course, as you've said time and time again, staying in touch and having a personal contact with each student is going to be so important. Absolutely. I'd, I'd say it this way, Don. I think our, our districts and charter schools are at varying stages based on the um, conditions in their communities of progressing along the journey to full return to schools. Some are beginning that next phase of our journey in a, in a remote, full virtual fashion. Others are doing it in a hybrid fashion, and there's varying degrees of uh, mixture between those two. But, but we're all focused on the objective of as soon as we can get the virus under control, as soon as we can move things uh, safely forward in a, in a careful and thoughtful and measured way to get our students back in the classroom, to get our um, young uh, athletes back on the field or on the court, back in the band rooms, uh, back in chorus, back in graduation ceremonies, back to where we want to be. And the best way we can do that is by wearing masks, washing hands, and staying six feet apart. Got about 30 seconds left. Uh... Uh, well, a little bit longer than that, maybe 45 seconds. And so what message would you give to parents right now? What, uh, what if you could take, talk to parents face-to-face, -face, what would you say? First, I'd thank them for the opportunity to educate their children. There is no greater gift that we're given and nothing that we worry about more nor love more than, than our children. And I feel a great debt of gratitude to every parent in North Carolina for that opportunity. Um, I so appreciate when parents share their concerns and their fears and their aspirations and my colleagues and I on the state board uh, take those to heart in every decision that we make and we attempt as best in our poor judgment to be able to do what's best for our students recognizing that there's a variety of needs across our state and so we're going to be focused on uh, caring for your child and every child across our state. Absolutely perfect timing. I think I'm going to give you a job in broadcasting because you've left me with just enough time to remind folks if they'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or the two segments they might have missed, um, then they can go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong, and he'll have another guest for us again next week on the same group of stations across North Carolina. And so until next week, same time, same station. Have a nice week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.